You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Change Management There are many different approaches and models for change management in organisations. Rather than trawl through them, here I want to focus on just three that I have found most useful. The first is Richard Beckard and David Gleitch's formula for change, D times V times F greater than R. This means that three factors must be present for meaningful organizational change to take place. These factors are D, which is dissatisfaction with how things are now, V, which stands for vision of what is possible, and F, the first concrete steps that can be taken towards the vision. If the product of these three factors is greater than R, which is resistance, then change is possible. I've seen CSR change efforts fail for all four reasons. Deep-seated resistance often exists because the benefits of the status quo to those in power are considerable. CSR initiatives, especially if they are integrated into the core business, are often seen as an extra burden. For instance, an operations manager of a plant really doesn't want the extra hassle of collecting emissions data for a CSR report or subjecting his staff and facilities to an audit. Most often, I think, the dissatisfaction that we may feel with the state of the world or the company's actions really isn't widely enough shared. Jonathan Porritt, author of Capitalism as If the World Matters, after many years in the sustainability game, he started the UK's Green Party and chaired the government's Sustainable Development Commission, among other things, he said to me, Looking at people all over the world today, rich and poor, they are not remotely close to a state of mind that would call for anything revolutionary. There are no vast upheaval of people across the world saying, This system is completely and utterly flawed and must be overturned and we must move towards a different system. There isn't even that, let alone an identification of what the other system would look like. Likewise, on creating a compelling vision, Porritt concludes that we have not collectively articulated what this better world looks like, the areas in which it would offer such fantastic improvements in terms of people's quality of life, the opportunities they would have, a chance to live in totally different ways to the way we live now. We haven't done that. Collectively, we've not made the alternative to this paradigm, this paradigm in progress, work emotionally and physically in terms of economic excitement. We've just not done it. Taking first steps is something that companies are generally much better at, especially picking the so-called low-hanging fruit. But the reason these steps so often don't get beyond the pilot or peripheral stage is because of the other two factors, dissatisfaction and vision, which are usually not strong enough. A second model I find helpful was developed by a colleague from Cambridge University, Professor Charles Anger, building on some work by McKinsey & Company. He created a matrix of organisational change, where one axis shows a spectrum from top-down commitment to bottom-up passion and the other plots discipline and compliance processes through to creativity and innovation through imagination. 
Hence, top-down compliance processes or reinforcement systems may include objectives, goals, targets, track records, measurements, rewards and penalties, while bottom-up compliance processes, the skills for change, include manuals, standards, procedures, learning, skills, IT or knowledge management systems, protocols, quality management, audits and workshops. On the other hand, top-down imagination, which is the purpose to believe in, includes vision, mission, purpose, strategy and values. And then bottom-up imagination includes culture, behavior, inspiration, awareness, stories, meaning, understanding, demonstrations, pilots and trials. Hence, if you are engaging in a CSR change effort, you should ensure that you are working effectively in all four quadrants to raise the chances of success. Process of Change Jim Collins, author of Good to Great, reminds us that companies that went from being good to great did not rely on revolutions, dramatic change programs or wrenching restructurings. Rather, the process resembled relentlessly pushing a giant flywheel in one direction, turn upon turn, building momentum until a point of breakthrough and beyond. In some research I've been doing with Polly Curtis, Director of the University of Cambridge Programme for Sustainability Leadership, we have identified a number of key change processes that are required for sustainability to be advanced. These happen at the macro, organisational and people levels and are described briefly below. At the macro level, leaders need to foster or change the prevailing values, culture, incentives, rules and resources. In a 2010 survey by Accenture and the UN Global Compact, 54% of CEOs felt that a cultural tipping point on sustainability is only a decade away, and 80% believe it will occur within 15 years. At the organizational level, leaders can catalyze change for sustainability through various actions, including innovation, empowerment, accountability, closed-loop practices, and collaboration. Let's look briefly at each element. Sustainability leaders are good at promoting creativity in business models, technology, products and services that address social and environmental challenges. For example, the ENSYS group is tackling major concerns about the production of biofuels, in particular on food prices and food security, by co-producing animal feed in its production process in Europe's largest wheat refinery. The 350,000 tonnes of high-protein animal feed produced by the plant will reduce European demand for soy meal imports, which contribute to high levels of deforestation in South America. To cite another example, Jorma Alila, who became CEO of Nokia in 1992, is said to have built a culture, the Nokia Way, that is known for experimentation, continuous learning and social responsibility. Sustainability leaders also implement structures and processes for good governance, transparency and stakeholder engagement. Accountability does not have to be all about structures and controls, however. Collins believes great leaders foster a culture of discipline. When you have disciplined people, you don't need hierarchy. When you have disciplined thought, you don't need bureaucracy. When you have disciplined action, you don't need excessive controls. According to Jeffrey Immelt, Enron and 9-11 marked the end of an era of individual freedom and the beginning of personal responsibility. 
You lead today by building teams and placing others first. It's not about you, he says. Sustainability leaders adopt the principles of cradle-to-cradle production, internalizing externalities and extending these principles to the supply chain. For example, Motorola demonstrated life-cycle thinking in mobile phones with the launch of the world's first carbon-neutral mobile phone early in 2009. Sustainability leaders build formal cross-sector partnerships as well as innovative and inclusive collaborative processes such as social networking. Betty Sue Flowers, co-author of Presence, poses the challenge as a question, saying, We know a lot about heroic action because that's in the past of leadership, but how do you have leadership in groups, across boundaries, multinationally? At the people level, leaders catalyze change for sustainability through envisioning, inspiring, empowering and supporting. Sustainability leaders provide a compelling vision, encouraging long-term thinking, making strategic investments and promoting intergenerational equity. Jeff Immelt says that every leader needs to clearly explain the top three things the organization is working on. If you can't, then you're not leading well. Ray Anderson sees this as a process of inclusion, saying, Today, for Interface, sustainability is broader than before. Sustainability reaches out to embrace people, processes, products, place, the planet and profits. We now know that none can long be afforded allegiance at the expense of the others. Sustainability leaders deepen knowledge and skills and provide opportunities and resources for appropriate action. Robert Greenleaf says, The servant leader is servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve. Then conscious choice brings about an aspiration to lead. The best test is, do those served grow as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser, freer, more autonomous, more likely themselves to become servants? Jim Collins endorses the importance of the people aspect of change. Good to great leaders, he says, first got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats, and then they figured out where to drive. Sustainability leaders also focus on creating a culture and structure that provides peer support and encouragement and recognizes achievement. The Centre for Effective Leadership claims that a sustainability leader builds a climate of support and accountability rather than control. Similarly, Jeff Emmelt says, Today it's employment at will. Nobody's here who doesn't want to be here. So it's critical to understand people, to always be fair and to want the best in them. Wheels of Change Another way to think of change in a structured way is Bob Doppelt's Wheel of Change, taken from his book Leading Change Towards Sustainability. All organisational change, he argues, comprises seven steps. First, change the dominant mindset. Second, rearrange the parts of the system. Third, alter the goals of the system. Fourth, restructure the rules of engagement. Fifth, shift the flows of information. Sixth, correct the feedback loops. And seven, adjust the parameters. Doppelt also reminds us that change is like an iceberg, where the most important parts are below the surface. 
What we usually see are events, like crises or daily issues, whereas what we don't see and what makes change really effective are patterns of behavior, systemic structures, mental models and visions, such as the underlying values and beliefs. Another wheel of change is Peter Senge's concept of the learning organization, popularized in his book The Fifth Discipline. He describes the five interrelated disciplines as follows. Systems thinking, which is the fifth discipline, needs the disciplines of building shared vision, mental models, and the personal mastery to realize its potential. Building shared vision fosters a commitment to the long term. Mental models focuses on the openness needed to unearth shortcomings in our present ways of seeing the world. Team learning develops the skills of groups of people to look for the larger picture that lies beyond individual perspectives. And personal mastery fosters the personal motivation to continually learn how our actions affect our world. In a follow-up book called Learning for Sustainability, Senge, together with co-authors from the Society for Organizational Learning, apply the fifth discipline model to sustainability. In particular, they emphasize connecting the inner and outer work that needs to be done. They say, connecting the inner changes in how we manage and lead with the outer effects our organizations have on our larger systems, connecting the inner changes in mental models and personal visions with the outer changes in management culture and connecting the inner changes in who we are as human beings and how we act and interact. All of these are important. In seeking to create change for sustainability, Senge and his colleagues once again emphasize the interconnected nature of all change processes and the critical role of business, saying... There has never been before a time when the social, ecological and economic conditions that challenge political leaders in any one part of the world have been so interwoven with what is occurring in so many other places. This phenomenon has arisen through the ever-growing web of interconnectedness spun by institutions, especially multinational corporations. Collectively, these organizations determine what technologies are created and how they are applied around the world which markets develop and which are largely ignored. These institutions determine who benefits from the world economy and who does not. Given this interconnectedness, Senge believes the key challenge is collaboration. To illustrate his point, at an MIT Sustainability Summit in 2010, Senge asked the question of his audience, what would it take to get rid of disposable cups? Who would have to work together to eliminate disposable cups? The answers suggested included everyone from Starbucks and its competitors to paper manufacturers, food service providers, recyclers and municipal governments. Hence, to make real headway on tough sustainability issues is a massive undertaking in collaboration. What's more, the parties that need to collaborate often aren't naturally inclined to do so. Senge concludes that the good guy, bad guy mentality can be a barrier to collaboration. He says, you've got to wake up and say, we're all part of the system. You know who is causing the destruction of species? You and me. You know who's causing the huge waste problems around the world? You and me. Once you become more open-minded to this possibility, then you can look for collaborative solutions. 
look for small steps of things you can do together with people with whom you traditionally would never have cooperated, and then do something useful, no matter how small. Theory U The theme of collaboration was echoed by Atu Sharma in his book Theory U, as in the letter U. Theory U was given a preview in Presence, a book that Sharma did with Senghi and others. It explores a new way of creating change through leadership. This time, says the Presencing Institute, calls for a new consciousness and a new collective leadership capacity to meet challenges in a more conscious, intentional and strategic way. The development of such a capacity would allow us to create a future of greater possibilities. We know a great deal about what leaders do and how they do it, but we know very little about the inner place, the source from which they operate. And it is this source that Theory U attempts to explore. Theory U, or presencing as it is also known, is depicted visually as moving down the one side of a U and back up and out the other side. Essentially, it is a process of letting go of assumptions, listening to others, being open to something new and unexpected emerging, and then testing the new vision through pilots before rolling out the solution. According to Sharma, presencing is an antidote to the prevailing feeling of powerlessness in the world, of being a victim of forces beyond our control. He told me that it actually goes all the way up, including to the boardroom, where you are chased by Wall Street. For those in leadership situations in business or government, the demands are so enormous that this deeper space of reflection becomes one of the anchor points that they use every day to be more effective. Sharma sees this as part of a bigger story, where the way in which we can make change happen in the world is evolving. He told me, If you look at the evolution of capitalism, we have three coordination mechanisms that have evolved over the past 200 years. Regulation and hierarchy, market and competition, and dialogue and stakeholder negotiations. We have these three, and often the debate in sustainability is, is it regulation or is it markets and innovation? Or is it stakeholder dialogue and negotiation? But that's what we're already doing, and it's not getting us the results that we need. What we need is more of these three, plus a fourth one. The fourth one is disruptive. It's the radical jump that we use as a microsystem changes. We can see it in the area of sustainability and climate change on a small scale. It has to do with seeing and operating from the whole. It means that the coordination is not some kind of market mechanism, it's not somebody's regulation, it's what spontaneously happens. A new mythology. Sharma's co-author of Presence, Betty Sue Flowers, believes this shift is part of a new mythology that is emerging. She explained it to me as follows. The economic myth and by myth I don't mean something untrue, I mean a large story of reality that we swim in, the way the fish swim in the sea unconsciously, has as its basis growth, but it doesn't take into account quality. So growth itself, that upward line on the graph, is the end point of the economic myth. The strength of the economic myth is that economics is about interconnectedness, and as its basis a kind of fundamental equality that is, my dollar is as good as your dollar. 
but what I call the ecological myth could evolve from the economic myth because it too is about interconnectedness, but interconnectedness of quality, not of quantity. I tend to agree we need a new story. As I wrote in 2002, each time the world changes, when civilizations rise and fall, when new scientific theories challenge our understanding of the universe, when technological innovation reinvents our lifestyle, when political revolution breaks down the old structures of society, and when a global crisis threatens to destroy our planet, humanity is forced to let go of some of its most cherished beliefs in order to create a new mythology to guide its collective psyche. We are at just such a fulcrum of change, and the beliefs we need to challenge and modify are many. Maybe it is our belief in the beneficence of the invisible hand of the market, or our belief that a global political deal is all we need to solve the climate crisis, or that business has the power to act unilaterally in bringing about a more sustainable and responsible future. If my experience of living through the political changes in South Africa taught me anything, it is that change is systemic. It happens because of millions of small actions by millions of people all over the world, some coordinated, some diffuse. Yes, change also happens because of bold leadership, but it always needs an enabling environment, a society or an organization that is ready to change. Change is something organic. It's worth remembering that the largest living thing in the world is a honey mushroom in Oregon, an interconnected fungus measuring 3.5 miles across. It is said to be 2,400 years old and takes up 2,200 acres, or 1,665 football fields, with the small mushrooms visible above the ground only a tiny proportion of its real girth and substance. I think change is something like that too, spread out, interconnected, growing where the ground is most fertile and often invisible.